A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, beginning in the fourth chapter, the first verse. And they were speaking to the, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, who all were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the people of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, our passage from the book of Acts opens with the paragraph where we left off last Sunday. And this morning, I want to explore how the plot continues from chapter 3, drawing once again from the help of theologian Willie Jennings. Last week in chapter, three, we in chapter 3, we explored the apostles, Peter and John, encountering a man who'd been lame since birth and then healing that man. But when that healing attracted the attention of all who were at the temple there, Peter testified that this healing had been done by the Spirit of Jesus, whom they, the crowd, had put to death. And then Peter called them to repentance for that to turn to Jesus, be forgiven. 
Well, now today we began reading at the beginning of chapter 4, where the rulers of the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, had gotten wind of Peter and John proclaiming the gospel of Christ and his resurrection, of course, and therefore had Peter and John arrested in order to have them brought before the, the ruling council for a hearing. Well, the next day, the council assembles, which verse 5 tells us the council includes all of the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who are of the high priestly family. So all the bigwigs are there gathered together. And verse 7 continues that when they had set Peter and John in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this, healing the man lame from birth? And Peter essentially makes the same speech to these rulers that he'd made to the, all the common people, the crowd, the day before. And verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, Peter continued, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given. Among men, among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13 then describes how the, the council sized them up, Peter and John, saying, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, the members of the council were astonished. So clearly, there are some power dynamics at play in this episode. Those who are the most privileged and powerful are feeling threatened by this gospel that Peter and John are proclaiming. Verse 2 mentioned that those of the priestly class were annoyed by Peter and John and therefore exerted their power to have Peter and John arrested, essentially wanting to silence them, right? Then the next day... All these bigwigs trot out, right? Including Caiaphas, the, the infamous high priest before. And they question Peter and John in what to many would have been quite an intimidating scene. An intimidation of Peter and John is surely the goal. And yet, to the ruler's surprise, Peter and John don't seem to be intimidated by them at all. So clearly, this passage is highlighting a significant power imbalance between the two parties, between this ruling council and Peter and John. And yet, it's revealing this power imbalance between them in an unexpected way. Because what it really reveals, again, perhaps surprisingly, is that with the inbreaking of Christ's kingdom, those whom the world views as powerful, in this case the council, they are the ones who prove to be impotent. 
at least in comparison to those who are in Christ, operating in his kingdom, right? Peter and John, even though the world thinks of them as nothing, as nobodies, in this case, as uneducated commoners, we're told, they're the ones who are operating with all the confidence, all the power, and without any fear. So what this episode really exposes for us, helpfully, I think, are the limitations of worldly power. The limitations of power that this world might offer, that we might seek in this world. For example, the limitations of worldly power. Just notice the level of threat that these rulers feel, despite being so supposedly powerful, the level of threat they feel in response to Peter and John shows these rulers' awareness of just how tenuous their worldly power is, that it could evaporate. They're clearly terrified of losing it, right? Whereas in stark contrast, Peter and John seem completely at peace. Even though they were imprisoned overnight, they are the ones who are behaving like they're free. And to the council's astonishment, Peter and John are responding to their intimidation tactics in a manner that frankly demonstrates Peter and John's belief that as the scriptures say, greater is he who is in them than these powers in the world. So this passage reminds us of how tenuous and fleeting worldly power is and therefore why it's such a fool's errand for us as believers to pursue it. Particularly when we have Jesus and the freedom available to us through the way of his kingdom, which operates so differently from the kingdoms of the world. And this leads to another weakness of worldly power that's exposed here, which is that the kingdom of God has a tendency of leaving worldly power befuddled and disoriented, at least for a time. When worldly power encounters those operating in the kingdom, they don't know what to do, right? We saw this with Pilate before Jesus, and we see this here, right? Why? Because the kingdom operates in a manner, the kingdom of God operates in a manner based upon love rather than fear, whereas worldly powers, all they know is power, right? Love, I mean, what are we talking about here? It's power, right? And so they're unsure how to respond to or manage to those operating in the kingdom. Thus, the end of verse 13 says, and they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Oh, this is one of the, guy, the two of the guys who've been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing right beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition, right? Befuddled, speechless. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, the, the council conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it, right? We can't deny this healing that's happened. And this is really cool because, see, despite all of their worldly power, for 40 years, we learn at the end that this guy's 40 years old. For 40 years, these rulers, these shepherds, religious shepherds of the people, had had zero solutions for this man born lame. 
Zero. He had been left on his own to go beg every day just to survive at the temple gate. And yet in an instant, through these nobodies, Peter and John, God had changed and improved this man's life forever. You say, well, hallelujah. Yeah, hallelujah. But for these rulers, that is a big problem. That is a big problem. Because for all intents and purposes, these rulers essentially functioned in that society like they were God. Not only were they religious leaders who claimed to speak on God's behalf, but what's so sinister about worldly power, whether it's religious or not, is that worldly power functions as if it is God. Right? Those exercising worldly power use force and threat, either explicitly or implicitly, to ensure that what they say goes. Right? That what they say goes. Indeed, individuals and groups have worldly power. We can say that they have worldly power to the extent that what they say does go in the lives of others, right? That's how you would measure how powerful some individual or group is from a worldly standpoint. To what extent or in how many people's lives is what they say go? And yet to the council's credit, they understand that the healing of this lame man has the potential to undermine all of that authority because of the way it demonstrates quite clearly that not only is the council not God or even God's instrument, since God had used other means to help this man in a way the rulers never had, but the healing also suggests that the council doesn't even speak for God or represent him at all, despite being religious leaders, right? That's their whole gig, Instead, this healing suggests that perhaps this Jesus, whom these rulers had killed, and now his apostles were the one who spoke for God and carried out his will. So here in Acts chapter four, quite beautifully, the illusion of worldly power has been completely laid bare. And yet Peter actually provides the council members with an opportunity here suddenly confronted with how truly insecure they were with that reality, right? How, how insecure they were from having constructed their lives on the sand of worldly power. At that moment, any of these members of the council could have repented, could repent and join the followers of Jesus, just as many of the common people had the day before, according to verse four. Right, they could give up their trust in this worldly power they'd given their whole lives over to acquiring, and they could start over. They could be born again to life in the Spirit, to life in the kingdom of God. But as we talked about two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, it is very difficult for those who have privilege and power in this world to give that up to count all of that loss. These rulers had spent their whole lives constructing and enjoying little kingdoms for themselves. Were they really going to change course now? Were they really gonna have that kind of courage? Well, sadly, they weren't. Their pride was too great. 
So while many of those common people had repented the day before, not a single member of the council repents here. Instead, they choose the other road at this fork. Instead of repenting, they double down, right? They double down. Specifically, they double down on playing God. They double down in trying to reassert their control that feels so shaky at the moment. After conferring with one another, verse 17 says they decide that in order to keep the message from spreading, right, the gospel, further among the people, they say, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Give them a stern talking to. So they called Peter and John and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, if Peter and John had had poor boundaries or weak faith, this probably would have worked, absolutely, right? The stern talking to, they would have backed down and been quiet. And everything would go back to the way it was supposed to be in the mind of the council members. After all, the council did have the means and the power to change the circumstances, the external circumstances of Peter and John's lives considerably, right? And that's the subtext here, right? I mean, Peter and John know that from a worldly standpoint, the council can kind of make their lives a living hell or however you want to say it, right? But thankfully, Peter and John had very good boundaries and they understood who God is and that this council didn't speak for him. So in verse 19, Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God... They're pretty snarky. You must judge that. Like, you really want us to, to, to do what you want rather than what we think God wants to do? For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, they, they tell the council to go fly a kite. Right? Or as some in the South say, they, they respond to the council is, oh, bless your heart. Verse 21 says, when the council had further threatened them, they let them go. Further threatened them. Those who trust in worldly power and are thus seeking to play God in the lives of others. Two things are true. They're gonna be dominated by fear, dominated by it, and they will often resort to threats because really what else do they have? Those dominated by worldly power or trusting in worldly power will be dominated by fear and will all operate in, in threats every which way. While in great contrast, those who live by faith are free to represent God with not just love, but with uncontrolling love. Love that is not seeking, you know, which is, I know that's kind of a, a redundant thing to say. Love is not controlling by definition, but just in case we're not clear here, Right? Some people think they're loving when they're really just trying to control people. Right? An uncontrolling love. That would characterize Peter and John's conduct. Right? right? They had risked themselves to proclaim the gospel first to the people in chapter 3 and now to the rulers here. And yet despite all of that, despite risking all of that, Peter and John also clearly respect the other party's capacity to choose for themselves what they're gonna do, 
right? They are detached enough from it of like, you should repent. There's so much that you're, you know, you're looking the gift horse in the mouth if you don't, but they understand that the people may not and the council certainly won't. And they accept that, right? They, they respect the other party's capacity to choose what they'll do. They respect the free will of others just like God respects all of our free will, right? If that's how God acts, that's how we should act. So Peter and John, they plant seeds, right? They just seek to be faithful and they let God worry about bringing the growth, right? He may, he may not. So even if, even if we didn't know the bigger picture of this story here, even if we just had this Acts 3 and 4, by just the comparison of how people are acting, by their fruits, the council's resorting to the use of threat versus the disciples' use of love that doesn't seek to control people. Just comparing those two fruits, there is little doubt here as to who is representing God in this situation. There's often people who say they're representing God, but they're all about control. Right? And that's where in our little discerning minds and hearts, we can kind of say, yeah, BS, you know. Well, I'm guessing I'm not alone in marveling at how Peter and John were able to conduct themselves and respond with this level of courage and confidence in what would have frankly been some really intimidating circumstances, right? I mean, what would the equivalent of this be, to, be today? Being arrested and taken to court, right? Certainly, we don't live in a context that's as quite as hostile to Christianity as what Peter and John were in. But what I would suggest might make the witness of Peter and John difficult for us to relate to here is the difficulty we may have in imagining ourselves, in imagining us ever allowing ourselves to be in such a vulnerable position in the first place as they did. Can we imagine ever sticking our necks out nearly as far as Peter and John have in Acts chapter three and four? I'm gonna guess that's really hard for any of us to imagine. Most of us, I don't know. Maybe you got a lot more faith than I do, but. Why is that though? Why might even the council's approach feel to us more comfortable Right, operating in control and threats, trying to keep things in line. Why might that feel more relatable to us even than the approach of Peter and John in this passage? Well, the explanation I would give is that the dilemma plaguing Christians in much of the church, not only in our day, but perhaps since the fourth century, right, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, the church was given worldly power, right, in the fourth century. Ever since then, the dilemma facing Christians in this dichotomy between worldly power and the kingdom of God has been the temptation to try and have it both ways. We wanna try and have it both ways. See, ever since then, for the past 1,700 years in the Western world, it has been suggested or assumed, it's, it seemed possible for Christians to have it both ways, 
And by this, I mean, it is seen that we can be Christian disciples, that we can get saved and have Jesus on our side and live by faith, at least on that little front, whatever that means. I ask Jesus into my heart or I pray prayers or whatever. While at the same time, we can also pursue security, the security and glory that the world offers, that we can have it both ways. That we can live by faith, but that we can also cover our bases just in case God doesn't come through for us, actually. Right? By what? By pursuing worldly power and wealth. Well, I hope it's obvious, but in case it's not, at the root of this is not faith or faithfulness, it's fear. It's all about fear. Now, I know that none of us are ever gonna arrive at the place of purely living by faith on this side of glory, right? As I said on Easter, all of us have our idols, right? But just because we all have our idols doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to cast those idols down. And mostly because the impact that would have on our lives and those we love is considerable. The idols we hang on to, right? The, the question is, do we actually want to be rid of our idols? Do we actually see them as toxic or do we keep lying our, to ourselves about it? Are we able to see how the idols we cling to cultivate fear in our hearts, steal us away from resting in God? How our idols cause us to view others, at least those different from us, as threats rather than people to love as God loves them. Last Sunday, we had a baptism of baby Rose but during that, that baptismal liturgy, we were all given the opportunity to reaffirm the commitments of our own baptism, at least through reaffirming the Apostles' Creed. Well, Willie Jennings, who I've mentioned, he has a helpful teaching that relates baptism to the new way that Jesus invites us to approach doing living life in him. See, if I can just explain briefly, it's important to remember that, that water, water in the ancient world represented chaos. Water represented chaos. For example, the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 2, describes the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the earth before God brings order to the creation, right, over six days the parting of the Red Sea for the Israelites to be rescued, right? And then God parts it, and then those waters come back together to drown the Egyptians chasing after them, right? That spoke to how consequential water, the sea, could be to human life. The writings in the book of Job and Psalms about the great sea monster Leviathan as well as the story of Jonah being swallowed by the whale. All of this spoke to the sea as the place of the unknown, the, the place that is totally beyond human control. And rightly so, right? I mean, who has power over the sea, right? Many people in those days died at sea, never to be seen again. Right? 
So this view of water representing chaos, oh, they came by it honestly. Let's just say that. Well, all of this deepens the significance of what it means that Jesus submits to water baptism. His going down into the water should be understood as a sign of Jesus embracing our human weakness, our vulnerability to the chaos, the whims and ways of the world. Right? By his submitting to, to water baptism, he is submitting to, to living in the chaos of the world. That's what the water represents. It represents everything that's beyond our control, things that happen to us in this life that we can't do a darn thing about. Well, Jennings observes how, how Jesus did, didn't seek to escape this fragility, this vulnerability of human life. No, he entered into it. And now you'll say, well, yeah, but it ended up killing him. You're right. This ended up with the world, the chaos of the world, the force of the world, the principalities and powers ultimately putting Jesus to death. But his resurrection showed that this counterintuitive way of living is nonetheless the path to glorification for all humans. And so see, our baptism then is meant to symbolize our willingness to follow Jesus in that trail he blazed for us in a way that embraces the currents of life, of the waters of life, but embraces them with Jesus at our side, right? Our baptism is meant to signify our desire to live in reality, not to always be trying to escape reality. That's what the world does. Our baptism is meant to signify God's commitments to help, commitment to helping us stay in reality, stay present, trusting our destiny to him. And thereby, because we are trusting him, we are freed up to love those around us and exist in whatever circumstances, just like Peter and John in the book of Acts here. So that's kind of the good news. That's the vision of what, what baptism should start us into, the way of living, the, the otherworldly way of living by God's spirit that we're invited into, right? However, our tendency, whether we've been baptized or not, is, is to not live this way at all, right? Our tendency is not to live by faith, but to live in fear. the sinful ways of living that we were born into, that way of living seeks to hedge, to reject the currents of life by doing whatever we can just to insulate ourselves from them, to try to control whatever we can, right? Which of course, I mean, we're just, <laughs> it's ridiculous when you really think about it, but that's what we do, right? We try to do this by grasping for more than God has given us to control. Well, that's the approach taken not by Peter and John, but by whom? By the council. These members of the council, they've chosen in their lives to run after wealth and power in order to insulate themselves from the currents of life. And I'm sure to some extent it was successful, right? But, but by insisting upon securing themselves in their own ways rather than trusting in God, 
What they've done is they've, they've gone down this false path where they have to constantly be afraid. They have to constantly be on guard. They have to constantly be getting more control and reasserting control as they do in this passage. Right? And they're forced to view every human being as a threat to their control. You can be darn sure they'd never rest. They may have had the beautiful palace, the beautiful vacation but those hearts were never at rest. And even this worldly power they had gained, or Jesus might say the world they'd gained, when God shows up here in Acts 4, it proves to have been nothing. Their whole lives, everything that they had lived for, proved to be nothing. So, when we as Christians seek to control the world around us rather than live through life with God, whether we do this in our relationships or in politics or in the things we spend our time and energy doing, even if we do it in the name of Jesus, if it's about just seeking control in our ways, it is a denial of our baptism. We can claim Jesus all we want. Right? It's like those folks at the Capitol. They can claim Jesus all they want. That ain't Jesus. Not to mention, we're courting untold frustration and being unintentionally or unwittingly opposed to the purposes of Christ himself when we live this way. And to approach the Christian life in this way, trying to inherit Jesus and the world, have it both ways, that is the reason why the witness of Christianity has frankly become kind of a joke in America. It's hypocrisy, right? That hypocrisy is why people are fleeing the church in droves, and I don't blame them, right? But Jesus is calling us down a much narrower path and it's not too late to begin taking it. It wasn't too late for the council either. They just had pride preventing them. Will pride prevent us? Jesus taught that whoever would save his life in a worldly manner will lose it. But whoever's willing to give up on that futile mission, to give up on it for Jesus' sake, will save it and will experience true life. So the path of true life is in denying the fears of our flesh and encouraging those frightened parts in faith, to have faith, to trust the way of Jesus. It's such faith that would later allow St. Paul to, to remarkably state that for the sake of Christ, he was content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, similar to what Peter and John faced in Acts 4. Because the Lord, Paul could say that because he said the Lord had taught him, had taught Paul that, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Meaning that when Paul was weak and relying upon the Lord, only then was Paul truly strong. So to close, what trust have we placed in the worldly power where have we trusted in worldly power that the Spirit is calling us to repent of today? What are we grasping for in this world because we just haven't been able to quite trust God on that? 
May we ask God to grant us the faith to turn our backs upon these lies. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.